Good morning. Welcome to Grace Point. Welcome to all of you joining us online, praying that you have a, a great experience in that way. Um, I want to echo something that Pastor Dave was sharing um, about groups. When I was a young man going to the University of Minnesota, freshly married to my wife, Vicki and I, we, we joined a small group from our church way of the cross that met uh, close to us there in St. Paul. And it was led by a guy named John Justice and his wife, Vivian, and they had a little girl named Mia. I can remember all these facts. It was life-changing. They were just great, and it was great to meet every week and develop in our faith. And so this fall, as, as we really kick off into groups, I can't encourage you enough. Um, you join a group if you've never been involved. It's, there's something unique about doing life on life and having that personal interaction that just accelerates uh, your growth in the Lord and establishes you in your faith. Well, happy Father's Day to all you dads. Glad you're here this morning. I tell you what, you have a high calling. God has called you to uh, shepherd your family well. Uh, to lead them in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I pray that today, in some way, the message I share with you will help you in that endeavor. But today, just remember that uh, you're, you're gifted and you're called uh, to shepherd your family and, and step into that calling and, and embrace it as God's gift to you. I want to catch us up on, on what we're going to be reading from today in the book of Daniel. We're to chapter 5. The first four chapters deal with this crazy king named Nebuchadnezzar, basically. And then there's uh, four young Hebrew men that are interacting with him, Daniel, and then to use her uh, Babylonian name, Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego. And so what we learn in the f- first few chapters is that God's sovereign over nations and kingdoms and peoples. We, we learn that, and we see that in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, who was just crazy and arrogant and egocentric. Everything you can label this guy, he was that person. But then in chapter 4, we see that God brings him to a great humiliation. He repents, so to speak. He acknowledges God and exalts God ultimately. And that brings us to the end of chapter 4. So now as we get to chapter 5, um, we're going to meet a new king. His name is Belshazzar. And uh, uh, his story is really interesting. How many of you ever heard the saying, the writing's on the wall? That comes from the Bible, and we're going to see that scripture today as part of our our, our reading here uh, as we continue on in Daniel chapter 5. When you hear someone say the writing's on the wall, what they mean is it's it's obvious, but it's not so obvious. If you know what's going on, it's obvious to you. If you don't know what's going on, it's not obvious to you. You see a subordinate uses this about the boss who doesn't see what's going on. Well, the writing's on the wall, but you just don't see it, you know. It's usually used that way. Anyway, this this phrase comes from Daniel chapter 5. one thing we're going to learn right away about Belshazzar, he loves to party. He knows how to throw a big party. And uh, that's how we're introduced to this, uh, this new, new king now of Babylon. So listen to uh, uh, um, chapter 5 of Daniel, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to go through verse uh, 4 to begin with. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold It's silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So in this drunken stupor, okay, that's the only way to describe it, this king of Babylon, Belshazzar, um, says, let's get out the the goblets that my father pillaged uh, from, from Jerusalem years ago, and let's drink wine out of them. 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar is called the father of, of, of Belshazzar. That was kind of a common uh, language used in that day. He was more like his great-grandfather, but they would just refer to any of your ancestry as father, okay? So they were calling Nebuchadnezzar his father, but he was down the line a ways from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and he was using these very sacred vessels of the Lord, set apart for worship of him in this temple in a common, profane way. And it brought an immediate response from God. Uh, amid all this uh, sacrilege and all this revelry and all this kind of partying, God intervenes. He shows himself to be the, the one true God, and he brings all the festivities uh, to a, a glaring halt. By the way, whenever I preach uh, from the Bible, frequently you try to use illustrations, and you try to kind of, you know, give you hooks to kind of tie into the story to get your interest. This story is really interesting. It really doesn't need any hooks. I mean, once, once we get into it and talk about it a little bit more, you'll see what I'm talking about. But this is the stuff uh, uh, that really kind of grabs your attention. Listen to what happens next here in, in Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, I would think so, right? And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Have you ever been so frightened that your knees knocked or you felt that you're going to faint? Anybody ever had that experience? It's very, very disabling. This is the origin here, by the way, of the phrase, the writings on the wall. This is where it comes from, Daniel 5. A lot of our culture takes the things out of the Bible and normalizes them. We don't realize, hey, that's something from the Bible. Well, this is taken right from the Bible. And this was a strange and shocking intervention by God. It's something like you'd see in one of those scary movies. You know, you just kind of keeps on the edge of your seat. Anybody watch some of those scary movies ever? Why do they go down a dark alley? Why do they open the door? Right? I mean, come on. You see the hero, the God opened the door. I said, well, you deserve it. If you're going to be dumb enough to open the door, you deserve whatever comes out of that door, right? And you just wonder what's going on. Well, they didn't have a choice here. I mean, the fingers of God show up. Well, the fingers that he sent show up, I should say it rightly. And it causes absolute fear in King Belshazzar. He turns pale. <laughs> his legs give way. Literally, the meaning of this reaction is that the bands and knots of his legs uh, were loosed. And he comes near to fainting. Now, this idiom that, that we, that's been translated as knees knocking here can be translated a number of different ways. And the version that we read says his, his knees knock together. One scholar suggests this. The idiom could be translated this way. His bowels were loosed. Yeah, he went doo-doo in his pants. Okay. That's what it means, all right? You getting, I mean, that, that boy was scared, okay? And uh, you can take that to wherever you want to take it, but that's what it means. As chapter 5 continues, uh, we're told that the king called for the wise men of Babylon to interpret the uh, writing on the wall. A better way would be to say, he screamed for them to come in utter fear. Get, here, get in here and interpret this for me. Uh, there's sheer panic going on. And once again, as so often was the case in the book of Daniel, his wise men come in and they're not very wise. <laughs> they couldn't interpret what was being said. They had no idea what was going on. And he became so desperate for an interpretation that Belshazzar promised that whoever gave this interpretation to him would become third in his kingdom in power. You ever wonder why not second? Why third? Why not fourth? Why not fifth? Why third? 
Hold on to that question because it's a good question. And we'll get to the answer here in a few moments. But I want to take you on a couple of tangents first. Are you all right with that? Yay! Someone says, yay, you have no idea, right? But here's the key perspective. When it comes to reading a story like this in the Bible, here's a key perspective. Whether you've been in the faith a long time in your life or you're new to the faith, this is a perspective that you need to embrace. The Bible is true. It always shows itself to be true. Even when the story like this seems, how can this be true? How could this really happen? you got to get to this place of conviction in your life, friends, that you see the Bible as true, first and foremost, even if you don't understand how it can be true. Now, here's why I say this, especially about this scripture that we just read here this morning. In the 1700s and 1800s, there were some uh, academic, liberal, biblical scholars who didn't fully believe in the truth of the Bible. And they began taking over some of the institutions in Europe and some of the institutions in, in the United States. And so when genuine Christians would show up uh, to this Bible school to get trained, frequently they were ridiculed for their, their faith and their fundamentalism. Um, and their faith and belief in the Bible was attacked. And, and Daniel chapter 5, friends, was often used as some of that attack. Okay, you hang in there with me. That's, this is why I'm bringing it up as a tangent, but it kind of ties into what we're talking about today. Do you notice the first two words of chapter 5 were simply King Belshazzar? Um, according to this chapter, uh, a man named Belshazzar was king of Babylon when that great empire fell uh, to the Persians. Another tangent. Are you all right? I'm tangenting on tangents. Someone said it was a code tangent. I said, this is not math, it's not trigonometry, don't confuse people. So, it's just another tangent here. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Do you remember that dream? Where he sees a statue with a gold head, silver torso, bronze, a bronze, you know, midsection, and, and iron, iron legs and feet, and feet with some clay. And, and he doesn't know what this means. And then Daniel explains, well, you're the head of gold. And following you is going to be another kingdom, not quite as good as you. Following that will be another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and then... Ultimately, the kingdom of God will come and displace it all. Well, what we see here already happening in Daniel chapter 5 is this prophecy being fulfilled already. That the Babylonian kingdom was going to come to an abrupt end. And the Medes and the Persians were going to replace them. It's an amazing fulfillment uh, of prophecy. Um, by the way, so when, when this is taking place, I'm back, I'm back off that second tangent onto the first tangent now, okay? So now I'm talking about Belshazzar and and. and these, these liberal scholars are saying, well, there, there's no king in, in the, you know, in the you know, uh, documents of antiquity that we have that name Abelshazzar. Instead, they say there's this king at this time whose name was Nabonidus. Nabonidus, okay? Um, so they said, therefore, this chapter is just fiction. It's got a good more story, but, you know, you can't take it very literal, okay? And, and so they destroyed the, the faith of many. But I, I heard this saying, and I want you to hear this saying. Okay, it's a good saying. It says this, critics keep trying to bury the Bible, but archaeologists keep digging it up. And that's exactly what happened here. Some years ago, an ancient inscription was found where, where Babylon existed, which they think was in, in uh, Iraq, okay? It was dug up, and there was the name Belshazzar there. And then... One after another after another, his name was found in various, you know, ancient uh, cuneiform documents and tablets. Today, there's 37 references found uh, that, that refer to Belshazzar. 
In fact, we know the time, the very year and the month and the day in which the story that we're reading today took place. It was October 12th, 539 B.C. They found so much documentation. So excavations then uh, in, 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 in where ancient Babylon was have uncovered this palace of, Al, of, of Belshazzar. And they actually think they found the room where all what I'm reading to you today uh, took place. Now, if you remember, King Nebuchadnezzar was the first king over Babylon that we read about in Daniel, right? Once he dies, there's a succession of a bunch of kings. Not so good. They, got all, they all got assassinated. There's a whole bunch of them. But then along comes Nabonidus, okay? And he's a semi-competent guy. So guess what? He gets established as the king over, over Babylon. But he has no interest whatsoever in governing the affairs uh, of the nation. He, instead, he was super, super interested in archaeology. So he was interested in traveling across the empire searching for records of antiquity. So you know what he did? He put his son in charge of the kingdom. You know what his son's name was? Belshazzar. So when Belshazzar runs into this writing on the wall and he turns pale and he balls loose and all that kind of stuff, right? He can't say, anybody here who can interpret this for me, you'll be second in the kingdom. You know why? Because he was second in the kingdom. So what does he say? You'll be what? Third in the kingdom. Amen? The Bible's always true. Don't believe anyone that says it's not. Time always proves it to be true Discoveries always prove it to be true. Belshazzar was the de facto king, but he wasn't the number one king. His father was the number one king. He was the king in seating and in governance only, and therefore he could only give the third uh, seat away in his kingdom. I think it's so super sad that people's faith is derailed by people like this at times who don't really have all the facts yet, but assume somehow that they found a weakness in the Bible. The Bible is true. It's always accurate. Well, let's go on to a third tangent. All right. Are you okay with that? I'm, I'll get back to the message here in a moment. This stuff all matters. Well, it does to me. And I have the microphone. Amen. Travis is laughing at me. So, so but this matters. Um, God's ways are always true and right. I have that so firmly established in my, my life. And by the way, dads, the best gift that you can give to your kids is to be a man of God. Just love Jesus and hold to his ways no matter what goes on around you. So Vicky was in Europe for uh, 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 12 days, and I was home alone. And I did what most men do when you're home alone and kind of bored. I just turned TV on, and I mindlessly surfed, surfed through the channels, which I can never do when she's there. She doesn't like that. So I'm just going through, not really watching anything, kind of doing that man thing where you're not thinking. You're just kind of watching and observing. And on comes this show. And it talks about all these ancient archaeology discoveries that they're making that just are so fantastic, they can't explain half of them. I mean, they can't even explain the pyramids, how they were built, right? You understand that, right? No one knows how they were built. And they're saying, ancient man was super, super bright. So they come to their natural, secular conclusion. There are aliens involved. That's what they came to. And I'm watching this, and I'm just going, oh, you got, I'm kind of in my days. Even in my days, I'm going, really, guys? You know what? We don't come from ape men. You know, that's not our ancestry. God created us. And the people that were close to Adam, I want to tell you this. They were brilliant, perfect in genetic makeup, 
live long lives, I think they probably did some stuff. What do you think? Stuff that we don't probably yet understand even. And now we're finding some of those archaeological facts and we think, aliens? Hmm, I think I'll take the Bible's version over that. What about you? You know, and I think, yeah, that aligns with what the Bible says. If you're going to find ancient artifacts that were covered up in a flood and fossilized, they probably look pretty advanced because the people were advanced. They were brilliant and they were smart. So anyway, after that triple, triple tangent, see, I've been watching a lot of basketball. And I just want triples. Anyway, forget that. You, some of you know exactly what I just meant by that. We're going to go back to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, so basic summary of Daniel chapter 5 here in the verses I'm not going to read to you is something like this. No one could interpret the, 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 the writing on the wall. And the queen seeing the consternation of, of, the, of the king, she said, hey, I know a person that could do the interpretation. His name is Daniel. He was in your father's court. Remember now when we, she uses the word father for Nebuchadnezzar, that means his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar. And now Daniel's 80 to 85 years old. All right. And so they, they, they call him in and she said, he can definitely interpret this dream for you. And so Daniel's called in and the king flatters him like crazy and offers him, you know, the position of third in the palace. If he can interpret the dream, one big problem, and we're going to now read about that, is that the kingdom is going to be no more. So you can be third in the kingdom, but it's going to be no more. So it doesn't mean that much. What good would it be to be third of something that will be no more? It's like saying, the saying, a dollar short and a day late, right? It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So Daniel cut to the case saying, I don't want your reward. But listen to what he says in verses 17 through 24. This is fascinating. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your reward to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those of the, those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with dew, with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds your hand, holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. So, God went to great lengths to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And this was supposed to be a lesson we learned from vicariously. That's what he's saying. Belshazzar, you're supposed to know this. You're supposed to be humble. Now listen, friends, until we get too judgmental here of Belshazzar, what about us? We have all this methodology for learning vicariously. We have all these biblical examples. We have all these saints that have gone before us. We're probably, we're crowded, we're probably surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we learning from one another? Or do we have to repeat all the mistakes our ancestors have made? 
right? That's basically, God said, why, why didn't you learn? I, I gave you this lesson. Here's the fatal mistake of uh, Belshazzar. In his pride, he profaned what God had made sacred. He profaned what God had made sacred. Now, profane means common. That's probably the best definition. He took the sacred vessels that were supposed to be used for temple worship that were set apart for, for that kind of use. He took those and he used them to drink his wine out in a drunken stupor. He made common what God had made sacred. Profane means to violate the sacred, to treat with abuse, irreverence, or contempt, and to desecrate. And get this, friends. God will not be profaned. He'll never be made common. He'll never allow it. It may seem like it, it goes on for a season, but it'll only go on for a season, and then judgment will follow. God will right the situation. So before reading and interpreting the words, Daniel reprimanded the king. I have to give this guy kudos. He's courageous. He reprimands the king. He speaks with bluntness and, and, and plainness, and he spoke truth to the power and the culture of his day and not worrying about the consequences, and perhaps you do that when you get to be 85 years old. But it was just, it's just an amazing testimony to this guy's fortitude and his courage. And he condemned the king, saying, you know all what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. You didn't pay attention to it. You profane the things of God. You didn't humble yourself. Now, Romans speaks to the same kind of, uh, of situation. It says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, it says these words. People are without excuse who are godless and wicked because... God has made himself known through creation, but they're unwilling to see it or choose to ignore it. So every day you walk outside and you see the creation and you gaze at the stars and you gaze at everything around you. And if you choose not to believe that there's a creator behind this creation, God is saying you are without excuse because all this speaks of my glory and my majesty and my revelation uh, uh, to you. It's a fatal mistake when we diminish what God is doing and who he is and make light of him. God's never okay with that. That's a good lesson for us to learn as followers of Jesus Christ. We've got to learn this vicariously. We don't have to experience it ourselves. We can learn from the examples of other. When I was younger and it was, uh, uh, in fact, I was here leading the youth group at the time in the 1990s. Some of you vaguely remember those days. Some of you weren't born yet. Um, there was a song that we used to sing as a youth group that I really liked. It, it, it just had the refrain, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I just don't want to be a casual Christian. I want to be devoted, fully devoted to God. And so we would sing this song, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. You know, it's still in my mind all the time. I think that thought all the time. It's funny how certain things stick in your mind. And, and I, I think that's the essence of, you, you, you can't profane the things of God. You can't make them common. There's nothing casual about following God. Amen? You with me on this? It, it demands our all, our devotion, our love, and our total submission. So here's a great theme we're seeing here in Daniel chapters 2 through, through 6. God is sovereign over all kingdoms and holds our lives in his hands. It's a great theme we're seeing. We're seeing this theme over and over and over again. In Daniel chapter 2, we saw this theme when Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of the statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay, right? And it's, I'm over nations. I raise one up, I raise one down, or put one down, right? And then we get to the image of gold, the big statue, 90-foot gold, you know, in chapter 3, in the fiery furnace. What, what do we see again? God is sovereign over the affairs of people. He's in control. And then we get to the 
tree and that, uh, that whole story, uh, uh, Daniel chapter 4, what do we see again? God is sovereign over the nations and the people, and he holds our life in his very hands. And then we get to chapter 5, and we, see, we meet Belzar, who's just kind of dumb. He doesn't get it. And God, once again, declares, I'm sovereign over kings and kingdoms. I raise one up. I put one down. And then we're going to get to Daniel and the lion's den next week, the next couple of weeks. Well, we'll get there soon enough, not next week. Anyway, you, but anyway, you know, once again, we'll see that God is sovereign over nations and kingdoms, and he raises one up, puts one down, and he holds our life in his hands. You've got to understand, that is the great theme of Daniel chapters 2 through 4. That is the great theme. God is sovereign in all kingdoms, over all kingdoms, and holds our life in his hands. We're going to finish by reading the rest of Daniel 5, beginning with verse 25. Listen to this. This is the inscription that was written Mena, Mena, Tekel, Parson. Here's what these words mean. Mena, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paros, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom for a day. Because that very night, Belshazzar, the king of, Babylon, of the Babylons, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62, and Babylon is no more. You just gotta, just gotta let that soak in. This huge, seemingly impregnable kingdom is no more. It's done. It only merited four chapters in the Bible, and it's no more. And it's an example of God's sovereignty that's taking place here. And let's look at the writing of the wall interpretation, okay? In verse 24, Daniel tells Belshazzar that the hand was sent by God. This is really important to understand some of the imagery that's happening here. He didn't say this was the hand of God. It wasn't. It was a hand sent by God. See, back in that time, if you were a ruler, if you were a king, when you wanted to put an inscription out there for the public, you would never do that yourself. You would send an ambassador. You would send somebody who is a representative to you, and they would go and they would write out the inscription, thus says the king. So God sends to this group of folk here an ambassador a hand, and the, the hand is writing on the wall. It's not God's hand. It's sent by God. I know that's playing with it a little bit, but it's important to understand. They would get the imagery there. The king of kings, the lord of lords, has sent his ambassador to us. And the, writing, and the writing's on the wall. And, and, and here's what this, uh, this means. Mina means to number. That's what that word literally means, to number. God had numbered... Belshazzar's days of reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means to weigh out, to measure. God weighed Belshazzar in the balance, found him wanting. He did not measure up. Parson means just to simply to divide. The kingdom would be split between the Medes and the Persians. And we read here that Belshazzar does not live out the night. He's done. He's slain. The person's captured the city of the night, and he's killed. And in Daniel chapter 5, verse 3, there are no details. He's just totally slowly slain. I'm going, I would like to know some details. Well, there are some, there are some details here probably. And some, some um, historians ha- have come up with what they thought, think might have happened. Um, so what was going on here was the Persian Empire was attacking the Babylonian Empire. So it's kind of like 
Iran attacking Iraq today kind of geographically, okay? If you want to put some geography to it, it's kind of like that, okay? Um, but anyway, it was kind of like that was going on. And so um, that the king, the king um, comes back from his archaeology digging and, and, and he begins to uh, try to, uh, to uh, lead his army. Let me make sure I'm saying this right, okay? It doesn't matter if I am or not. You'll get what I say. Anyway, um, so the king comes back out of his archaeology digging and he's fighting the Persians, okay? So all this battle's going on. Well, in the meantime... Belsar is in, in, in the city capital there. He, he's, he's, not, he's not worried about Babylon. He's not worried about anything. He's having a party. Why? Because he thinks the city's impregnable. He doesn't think anybody can ever hurt him. And ancient historian Herodotus says this. There are 56 miles of walls around the city. They are 80 feet wide, 320 feet high, with 250 guard towers around them. So he's thinking, no way anybody can get in here. The Euphrates ran right through the middle of the city. And on the north side and the south side, there were slew gates, you know. And so no one could get in that way, they thought. And then they had about a 20-year supply of food. So they're thinking, eh, go ahead, Dad, you fight the war. We're just going to have a party here. Does that sound smart to you? Your enemies surrounding the city, they're trying to kill you. And you think, let's have a party and let's just drink wine. And let's use these gold goblets to do it. This guy's not the brightest bulb on the block, Right? So here's what ha- they think happened. This is what historians think happened. So they think that the, the Persians actually dug a canal and, and to the Euphrates and diverted the water to a, a nearby lake. And then the water level went below the sluice gates. And they just went in. They just walked in through the riverbed into the city from the north and the south. And the city was caught unaware and was taken without much of a battle. And they went right to Belshazzar and they what? Slayed him. And the Babylonian kingdom is no more. It was just that simple. Man, that seems way too easy, doesn't it? They took the city without resistance, but that's what history says happened. And Belshazzar was cut down with the sword, and the empire of Babylon ceased to exist. The head of gold as seen in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in, in Daniel chapter 2 is no more, and now the time of the Medes and the Persians is at hand. And it's just an amazing fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible. Um, uh, I, I, you know, even in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 21, verse 9, the prophet there, he, he, he predicts this. He says, um, Babylon has fallen with joy. He, he predicts the falling of, of Babylon. And you've got to remember, these are contemporaries. That are, all this writing is going on. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to read an awful lot about Babylon. Because there's a bunch of prophets that were writing during this time. And Isaiah sees with joy the falling of Babylon. And then it all happens. And don't you think that brought great encouragement to the followers of God? Just think if you were living during the Medes and the Persians, but you just saw Babylon fall. You think, oh, you're going to fall too. And then if you're under the Greeks and then under the Romans, right? And you're going to see these kingdoms fall. It would give you a different perspective if you were tuned into the ways of God and understanding his scripture. You'd think, oh, there's a kingdom coming that will be established forever. Of course, that's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you'd have a different perspective. Um, there's, there, the Bible foretells the rising of Babylon once again in the end of the, at the, end of the age. And the, this, this modern Babylon will do the same thing to the people of its time that ancient Babylon did to the people of its time. It will persecute the followers of God. It will go after the followers of God and try to force them to false worship and to deny their God. And we have to take and learn a lesson here vicariously. Amen. We have to understand with modern Babylon rises up, we have to stay faithful 
like Daniel stayed faithful. We've got to trust our God no matter what the outcome here is um, it, because history has a tendency to repeat itself. And so we're, we're probably going to go through the same thing. Uh, you know, at some point here, there's going to be some uprising, total uprising against God, and the people of God had better be prepared to be like Daniel in their faith and steadfastness. Um, but I just think, I just want you to just stand back a minute here. Daniel chapter 2 predicts the, this falling of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel chapter 5 talks about the reality of that happening. Isaiah talks about the reality of that happening. If you were to read Ezekiel, you would see it there, and you would see it in many of the other minor prophets. You would see the same thing being talked about. And I just read it and I go, God, you are indeed sovereign over the nations. You are in control. You are in charge. You raise one up. You put one down. Why do we worry so much? Why do we think that men are in control? They are not in control. Governments are not in control. Institutions are not in control. Ideologies are not in control. You are in control. Amen? Amen. And, and why do we spend so much energy worrying? Who by worry can add a single hour to their life? We need to trust in our God. <laughs> it's such a privilege to see some of this stuff happen. It should instill in us faith. And, you know, we've seen the great rock come that's crushed the statue. We've seen the kingdom of God come in, the, in Jesus Christ. And this kingdom has become the kingdom of this world. And of this kingdom, there'll be no end. It will last forever and ever and ever. And whenever it's done, it'll keep on going forever. Amen? And we're privileged to see that kingdom being built right in our midst. What powers loom large now? That's what I begin to ask myself. The media right now is out of control. You can't really turn TV on without getting indoctrinated into something that you don't believe in. It's not even subtle anymore. It's ridiculously blunt. You think God's going to deal with that power? Mm -hmm. What political power is looming large right now? And I'm not talking politics in the United States. I'm just using that word generically, okay? What seems insurmountable? I think Babylon felt insurmountable at the time. How can this kingdom ever fall? It fell. It fell quick and hard. God has a way of doing that. Whoever thought the wall in Berlin would come down? Anybody think of that happening in our time? Remember that when that happened? Some of you do. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Things like that seem immovable. God has a way of moving them powers and institutions and people and ideologies and all this stuff that set themselves against God and profane his ways. They may have an hour, but they won't have the day. Amen? Because God is sovereign over nations and over affairs of people and over individuals and he holds our hand or holds our life in his hands. Have you ever heard the phrase history repeats itself? It does. And that's part of the Bible. It's teaching us vicariously. This is what happened with the ancient Babylon. When modern Babylon comes and does the same thing, the same outcome will be the case. Listen to Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 through 5. It says this. After this, I saw another angel come down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. 
I can hear God saying that right now to us. Can you hear that? Come out of her, my people. What are you doing? Don't make peace with those who are not at peace with God. It can't be done. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Shortly after this in the book of Revelation, in the very next chapter, the future Babylon falls and Jesus comes to earth in his splendor. History has a way of repeating itself. We need to learn vicariously. History is not out of control. God is sovereign over the affairs of nations and peoples, and he holds your life in his hands, right? So here's our summary today. The Lord's Bible is true. His agenda is established. Did you hear that? His agenda is established. That's another way of saying he's sovereign. He's in control. His kingdom is coming. It's here and it's growing. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and, they, they, and he shall reign forever and ever. We are in process of the kingdom coming. It started when Christ was crucified. His kingdom started coming. It's coming and it's coming and there'll be a culmination when he returns again where his kingdom is firmly established. And knowing all this should make his followers very different people than everybody else. There's the big point. Knowing everything that I shared here should make you and me very different people than everybody else. We should view things differently. We should have a different kind of understanding of what's going on. And we should not be all caught up in the anxiety and the fear mongering that's happening right now as if God is not in control because our God is in control. If Daniel teaches us anything, it teaches that our God is in control. And no matter what happens, if we stay faithful to him, he'll hold us in the palm of his hand. And if death comes, we get to be with our Lord. Amen? But we stay faithful to the end because we ought to be like Daniel. So we're going to pray now. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for the book of Daniel and for um, how it instills faith in us. It's got some of the most divine stories of intervention in the Bible. Just amazing stories, Lord, from that dream of Nebuchadnezzar's all the way to the fall here of this King Belshazzar, Lord. It's just amazing stories of your intervention and of your divine uh, control, Lord. And I just pray today for us as followers of Jesus that more than ever, we would be like Daniel, trusting in your ways, committed to following hard after you, Jesus, not caught up in the frenzy and the fear of this world that we find ourselves in at this moment, but rather, Lord, that we'd be pillars and anchors uh, firmly secured in your ways, Jesus, and just trusting you more than ever. Would you bless the people of Grace Point? Would you bless all those watching today? Fill them with the person of the Holy Spirit. May we walk according to your ways and love you more than ever, Lord God, and be committed to you more than ever. Uh, God, you're great. You're the only true king. You're sovereign over nations. You're sovereign over kingdoms. You raise one king up, you put one down. Lord, you hold our life in the very palm of your hand. We acknowledge all that today, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to give us life and life anew. Would you just bless us, fill us, and Lord, may we, by the life we live, Lord, speak of that blessedness. Speak of the goodness of you. May it just be prevailing in our lives no matter what we're doing and who we're with, Lord. We just love you and praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.